G'day, welcome to On The Road, the number one Australian trucking podcast made for Aussie truckies by Aussie truckies. We're an independent voice in Australian trucking and proudly brought to you by NTI, Australia's leading transport and logistics insurer. This week, Gary Mann, CEO of the Queensland Trucking Association, joins us. We cover a little bit of ground there. Very, very interesting conversation with him. It's been a while since we've had him on the show, so nice to have you back, Gary. The music from David Kirkpatrick, Bob McMillan, and I have a little bit of a chat with something to talk about. Andy's in for the news. We've just got a, a big show happening. Let's get started. Let's get this show on the road. Yes, get on with it. G'day, I'm Yogi from Outback Chuckers, and when I'm on the road, we're always on the road doing stuff out on the road, but when we're on the road, we're listening to the On The Road program. <laughs> G'day, it's Andy here, continuing our series of ongoing introductions to homegrown Aussie music talent. This week, get set to meet a band from out of the New South Wales Central Coast that goes by the name of Two-Tone Pony. The band features Ian Rhodes on guitars, mandolin, harmonica and vocals, Greg Richardson on drums and vocals, Glenn Willie on the Hammond organ and keyboards, Greg Puglisi on bass and vocals, and on guitars, lap steel and lead vocals, a chap by the name of David Kirkpatrick. Now, if that name rings a bell, and it should, yes, he's the David Kirkpatrick, who is a brother to Anne Kirkpatrick, and son of the legendary Joy McKean and the late Slim Dusty. With such a strong musical pedigree flowing through his veins, it's little wonder that David has also found his niche in country music, even though his personal influences also include such rock luminaries as Neil Young, Tom Petty and the Rolling Stones. Now David is not your average muso. Beyond being a gifted songwriter, singer and musician, he also happens to have a career as an emergency medicine specialist. Two-Tone Pony was formed with a collective desire to write, record and perform original Australian music and they have a diverse repertoire from acoustic ballads all the way through to soaring country rock. In 2022, the band went into the studio with master producer Rod McCormack to record six new songs, one of which, A Life Well Lived, is their brand new single just released and our featured song for this week's show. To tell us all about the Two-Tone Pony Band, their new single and a whole lot more, it's our privilege to be joined by our very special guest, Mr David Kirkpatrick. David, thanks for dropping by for a chat. Thanks very much, Andy. My pleasure. Mate, if I had to nominate, I'm getting off track already. If I had to nominate my dream car, it would have to be a mid-60s example of that classic American muscle car, the Ford Mustang. <laughs> right. I'm led to believe that's also the inspiration that led to the choice of your band name, Two-Tone Pony. Yep. So two questions I have to ask. One, who owns the car? And two, would they be interested in adopting me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's see. This all came about because I'd written a rockabilly tune and I, I just didn't have lyrics to go with it. So right. I spoke to the other singer-songwriter in my band, Ian Rhodes, and he's very good at knocking up lyrics. And 
he came off for this. I, I have no idea where he got the idea from. And then he explained to me what a two-tone pony was. Right. And, yeah, we ran with that. And uh, when we were looking for a name for our band, because we had to change the name that we originally had because it was already taken. As it happens, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then trying to find a name for a band is really, really hard. So that hasn't been taken. And then I thought, well, oh, it's staring us in the face. Here's a, here's a great name. Yeah. And then about halfway through last year when we were playing a gig down in Sydney, a old schoolmate that I haven't seen for 20 years turned up to see us. And he just at the end said, oh, by the way, I have one of those. Oh. I live up on the Central Coast in New South Wales, and he was from Sydney originally. But And he said, oh, by the way, I've moved up to the Central Coast. He was five kilometres away from oh, me. Oh, meant to be. Yeah, he'd shipped it across only about 18 months ago and said, oh, well, he said, you're more than welcome if you want to take some, you know, PR photos with it. Fantastic, yeah. So that's how we ended up with that great picture of us with it. And, yeah, that's the story of the two-tone pony. Oh, brilliant. Well, again, getting a little bit sidelined, here years ago I was in a band we were trying to find a name you'd look around and you say well why don't we call ourselves the chairs why don't we call ourselves whatever <laughs> and every time you'd say it someone would say yeah why not so in the end we ended up calling ourselves why not <laughs> and we were all on the north shore in Sydney and there was a, a Cadillac convertible running around in crow's nest at the time with the number plate why not <laughs> so it worked out well for us to the same thing but anyway, we're here to talk about your music. Yep. The circumstances of the band coming together, David, were you all known to each other prior to forming the band or was it a case of someone saying, hey, I know this guy? No, we all go back a long way, actually. So the, the real genesis of this band, sidetracking myself a bit here, <laughs> I mean, obviously my career was in medicine sure. and specifically in emergency medicine as a specialist, so sort of, you know, full-on adrenaline-packed area of the hospital. Mm. But music has always been more than just a hobby. It was always a passion. So I played in bands all through uni. And all through my medical career, I've played in bands. But this all came about about four years ago, a bit more than that, when my daughter Hannah was getting married. And she said to me, Dad, I'd love you to put the house band together, so to speak, for the wedding, but I want a country rock band. Oh, cool. I don't want a rock band, I want a country rock band. I said, great. Yeah. Yeah, so the band members, I've got so Greg Richardson on drums and percussion. He's my brother-in-law. Right. So we're you know, great music fans, but we've never played in a band together before. Yeah. And Greg has had a long career in a studio manager and audio engineering with Radio National for about 30-plus years. Right. And then I also have... Ian Rhodes, a singer-songwriter, and our bass player, Graham Puglisi. They were both in bands with me on the Central Coast for the last on and off over 25 years plus. Right. And then we were putting demos together, and I thought, I really want some keyboards. So I contacted my mate in Sydney, Glenn Willey, and Glenn was the bloke who came up to me when I was in year 11 at school and said, hey, I hear you play drums. Do you want to join my band? Right. So Glenn and I go back a very long way. We played together in bands all through uni. He went on to become a specialist dental surgeon. <laughs> so oh, right. He always kept in contact and we always swapped ideas and music files and he loved it. And now, so he's in on the band as well. So we've all been playing music for a long time, but we have gelled together into this and country rock is sort of new for some of these guys, mm. but not to others. It's not a hard genre to enjoy when you're playing either, is it? Well, it gives you a wide diversity and, I mean, Obviously, I come from a family, a country background, yeah. but I always played rock music as a kid and grew up with rock music. So, you know, I'm just as comfortable listening to country music as I am comfortable listening to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, etc. Yeah. 
you know, when you listen to bands like that, there is this definite crossover there. So for sure, that works for us. And the stuff that we're doing goes from acoustic to full-on electric. So we, we've got a wide variety in our sound. Yeah. You mentioned before, David, about the writing, and it was mostly yourself and Ian. Yep. But is there a bit of a team effort? Does everyone else get involved at one stage or another with the writing? Well, the guts and the bones of it, you know, come from the songwriter, yep. particularly the lyrics and the melody. Mm. But then you've got to take it to your band and then start to get ideas in on the arrangement. I mm. mean, that's really what the band is doing and how can we bring this to life for everybody. Yeah. When I first started, I was quite particular about putting a demo down because, you know, I put everything down. I mm. play drums, I play the guitar, I do the bass, I put all the harmonies on it and sort of give it to them as this sort of finished product. Yep. And then over time, though, you gain confidence with the band and you're playing with each other. So now I tend to go to them with a demo that may be just me and one guitar singing. Sure. I've got the idea and I'll tell them the sort of idea I want. But I feel now I don't want to prejudice them with what some of my ideas might be for their instruments. I'd rather. So I'm feeling confident now to put it out to the band yeah. and let them give me their ideas. And that allows us to be a more collaborative unit. And it obviously works better for the songs. For sure. And it's nice when you can get to the point where you don't need to be so precious about it anymore. And input from elsewhere from trusted people is a good thing. Well, it is, you know. Yeah. As you know yourself. You've got to learn to leave your ego at the door. Yeah. As I've said to people, if you want to be in a band, you've got to have a really thick skin to yep. start with it because you get some brutal assessments coming in at times that you may not want to hear. If you can't put up with that, you won't last long. So very true. <laughs> That's why you can see there's some very precious singer-songwriters out there that do solo acts, I suppose, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they only have to listen to themselves. <laughs> and they still end up in arguments anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. David, you ventured into the studio in 2022 and decided to take Rod McCormack with you as producer. That was an excellent choice. The man's a genius. It was. Were the songs all together before you went in or was an element of creation on the fly, so to speak, as you went? No, we had those songs pretty well rehearsed up and we knew what we wanted to do. Right. Having said that, didn't mean that we weren't open to, obviously, you go into the studio with someone like Rod McCormack, you mm. listen to what he says. Oh, for sure. Well, it's a bit like the old line from the song, isn't it? When the general talks, you better listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. And he doesn't make you feel like he's the general, though. He's very clever. Yeah. We went in there with him, maybe because I've known Rod for a very long time. He lives on the Central Coast, same as me. I've known him outside of music as well as inside of music. And you know, he's got a great studio. I'd been in there before with my sister Anne. And, and of course, we had his brother Jeff mastered you know, songs for us. Yeah. Look, Rod was fantastic. You go in, we said, oh, this is a song, this is how we like to play it. We'd say, okay, just play it through a few times and he'd always put everything down and then he'd start to say, okay, that might good live, but it just sounds a bit empty here. Or, mm. And he was great. So he did what he's supposed to do. He's a producer. Yeah. For an example, on the, the single and the song we're going to hear, none of us could really nail the intro that I wanted in my head and how I wanted it to be played. I could actually sing what I wanted. And Rod just picked up a little small guitar and just said, you mean something like this, David? And then yeah. came up with the introduction, nailed it. And I said, oh, you put it down, Rod. So yep. that's actually him playing that introductory line, whereas on everything else in we've recorded, it was all us. Yep. So, yeah, it was a pleasure. It was a really, really good fun. Is there a theme running through the collection of songs or are they all quite different? No, I'd say they're all quite different. 
having said that, I did realise that out of the six songs, three of them were probably almost not love songs but personal songs. Mm. And other ones, no, look, one song I wrote when I was driving out to Broken Hill just called Big Sky. There was dawn and watching it and driving through the, the canola fields. Beautiful. Another one is called Slow Lane about, you know, slowing down in your life and thinking about what's important. One I wrote for my wife, you know, I said to my wife, I've written a song for you. She said, oh, that's lovely, dear. What's it called? I said, Stormy Weather. Yeah. She said, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, we'll get through the stormy weather anyway. So Have you moved back in yet? <laughs> <laughs> so there are some things there. And we're going back in the studio in May with Rod again, right. putting down another six songs, and these will be probably a bit more electric-based. The The ones we've done are probably split half and half between acoustic and electric. Right. And we'll be going in with probably some more electric-type songs, but, you know, contemporary sounds. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't go in with an idea that I'm going to write a song about this. I, I usually get a phrase and an idea in my head and often marry it with a particular part of a, a melody or chord structure, and then I'd have to put the hard work in to finish it off. Yeah. Well, one of those six songs you recorded is A Life Well Lived, which we're going to have a listen to shortly. Mm -hmm. How did the song come about? What was the inspiration? I mean, I know it's a real storytelling song, but before we hear it, yeah. where did it come from? Well, the phrase is not mine, obviously. It's, sure. it's a phrase that's bandied about. But I first thought about it when I was actually asked to give a, a speech to introduce my mother for the, her Lifetime Achievement Award, the Ted Albert Award, mm. at APRA, the Australian Performing Rights Association. So I was privileged to give the introductory speech. And as part of that, I said, well, you know, if anyone lives up to that phrase, a life well lived, it's got to be joy. Mm. And then afterwards, when later on, when I was at home downstairs in my music room, and I was, well, it's quite interesting, actually. I was playing a 1962 Martin D28, which was my mother's. Nice. Which she gifted to me. Mm. It's actually one of the first Martins imported into Australia. Yeah. So I was playing that guitar, and I, and I had that phrase, like, oh, I can do something with that. Mm. And then I came up with the idea of the imaginary next-door neighbour, the lady I go in and chat to and give a hand to, and then sit down and reminisce and hear what she's saying. The guts of it is, in my own life, when you talk to people about their past, or you say, you know, what do you remember, your past or whatever, mm. what they talk about is relationships. You know, they talk about friends, family. That's what stands out to them, people they've met, friendships they had. Yeah. They don't sit down and tell you about the big car or the big house or the big money. It's most of us would like to think that when we look back on our life, we're going to be hopefully thought of as someone who did a good deed by someone and did the right thing. Mm. Look back and say, you know, did I live my life in a way that I'd like to? And I guess that was the theme of the song. Yeah. You mentioned your mum there, Joy, and obviously your dad, the late Slim Dusty. Mm. Not something I want to dwell on, but I know that for a lot of artists who, through no fault of their own, happen to have famous parents in the industry. Yeah. I also know that for many, the most important thing for them is being recognised as artists in their own right without constant references and comparisons to their folks. Mm. For you personally, has this been a help or a hindrance or a combination of both? The first thing is that this wasn't my primary career. Mm. You know, I didn't go out at 20 to make a, a name for myself. I worked in medicine. So I never tried to emulate Slim because that's impossible. Yeah. No one's going to emulate him. There's only one. There was only one. He was unique. And I'm very, very proud of what he and my mother have done. And, you know, I performed with them on and off when I had time off or holidays or special concerts. And that was always a great thing to do. 
but you're right. I mean, you know, I, I know that I'm lucky that I've now that I'm actually doing my own stuff, that people are interested in my background story. Mm. And I don't try to disassociate myself with that because I'm very proud of that. And that's what formed me in my musical sort of tastes in a way. Understandably, yeah. But you're right. People can, can look at you and think, you know, I, I say quite up front, you know, don't come to see me and my band and think I'm going to be doing bush ballads because I'm not. Yeah. But you will see me do songs. We're doing a concert at Charleville in July. Mm. And one of the reasons we're doing that is because it's actually 30 years since Slim released the song Charleville. Wow. That was written by Don Walker from Cold Chisel for him. Yeah. So we're going out there as part of a festival they've got on and we'll be doing our stuff, but in the middle we'll do Charleville and we're also in our band. I always open the second set with myself on acoustic guitar doing Looking Forward, Looking Back because to me that's a classic song. Again, another Don Walker song. Yes. But, you know, we do Lights on the Hill, we do Indian Pacific. You know, they, they're classics, and we do the Keith Urban version of uh, Lights on the Hill that he did with Slim. Right. And we do our own version of Indian Pacific. So, yeah, I certainly don't see that legacy as a hindrance. I see it as something that I, I love and that I acknowledge. But I'm also, you know, I'm very happy that people are interested in my story and in my sound and what I've got to say, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. And apologies, I probably should have been calling you doctor all the way through this, shouldn't I? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I've retired now, but I still can be called doctor. But I tell you, it seems like a lifetime laugh. I actually retired about four years ago. Right. And uh, people say, do you miss it? And I say, no, I loved it while I was doing it. And it consumes all your time. You know, I was shift working, it live and breathe it. But yeah. it's um, just by sheer luck, I retired six months before COVID. So oof, good timing. Dodged a bullet there when I saw my friends and colleagues still working under those conditions. It was, it was horrible. Yeah. Mm. Well, you mentioned there before about spending more time in the studio coming up this year and obviously more live shows coming up. Mm. Where can our listeners go, David, to find out more about Two Tone Pony, your music and any upcoming appearances? Sure. Well, you can go to our website, just, you know, Google twotonepony.com. You'll find us there where you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And we keep you updated all the time with stuff that's coming up. So, yeah, just there are the usual spots on the web and on social media. You haven't succumbed to the TikTok yet? No. Good no. man. Good I, man. <laughs> I think my daughter told me, Dad, don't go on TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> a very, very wise suggestion. <laughs> Folks, our special guest this week has been Dr. David Kirkpatrick from Two-Tone Pony. David, thank you so much for finding the time to come out and play on the road with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Andy. Great to talk to you. And I say hello to all the truckies out there because that was a very loyal fan base for Slim and Joy. Oh, for sure. And they wrote some special songs specifically for the truckies. Yeah. Well, we're going to have a listen to your new single, mate. Would you please do us the honour of introducing it for us? Hi, this is David Kirkpatrick of Two-Tone Pony, and you're listening to our new single called A Life Well Lived. She's 84, 
She's done it all and seen a whole lot more All part of a life well lived I help her carry in her groceries We sit and talk over cups of tea All about a life well lived We sit and watch the sun go down Here in her hometown This is the place she wants to be With her friends and family She got married back in 46 After the war it wasn't bliss At the start of a life well lived She wasn't rich but never poor her home always had an open door Hey, welcome to a life well lived She made mistakes along the way I know she'd say Things were tough but then they still are now It don't get any easier somehow When a Charlie went and left her alone She said goodbye at that funeral home And looked back on a life well lived Can you say the same as her? Count your blessings and a whole lot more Just be happy for a life well lived I sit and watch the sun go down Here in my hometown I know this is the place for me With my friends and family April 1979 and a cast of thousands of disillusioned truckies were making history, setting up a series of blockades the likes of which had never been seen before and most likely will never be seen again. Led by Ted Green Dog Stevens and a small band of dedicated individuals, this massive wave of protest against unreasonable working conditions, unfair pay rates and unjust laws spread like wildfire from its home base atop Razorback Mountain. Razorback, The Real Story is the book written by Ted Stevens that chronicles the dramatic days of the blockade, the battles with politicians and the media, and that time in history when truckies around the country united in a powerful force and said, enough. 
Rays of Act The Real Story has now been made into a beautifully produced audiobook, available for purchase at ontheroadradio.com.au. Whatever you do, don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to discover all the facts and details of the Australian trucking legend that is simply known as Razorback. G'day, today I've got Gary Mann to talk to. It's been a while since Gary and I have had a chat. We're going to have a bit of a bit of a lunge at a piece that was written in Big Rigs recently about... Uh, proposed minimum standards and the fact that it's not going to be the RSRT, that's pretty much it. Gary, how are you, mate? Welcome to the show. Yeah, good, thanks, Mike. Uh, good to catch up. I do exchange a few notes with you on um, social media <laughs> from time to time. But We do. Yeah, look, uh, there's no particular surprises here. I mean, um, the uh, federal government has had it as a part of its policy portfolio from when it was in opposition. Yes. So... Um, there's no surprises that they, um, you know, are, are pushing to roll it out, and particularly from a, an employer perspective, and and or um, owner drivers to a pretty reasonable extent, I, I think it's important that we look to try and shape that um, uh, legislation as best we can. So there were some pretty hard lessons to be learned from round one, particularly when it skewed off very much onto um, rates, mm. and um, uh, we know what the lessons all are uh, from that process. So as you move around the industry, um, and certainly as, as I've spoken and others have spoken around the country on this particular subject, um, there's no shortage of people uh, following us up uh, to talk about the issues and uh, their concerns. Uh, but, but most of all, they are generally looking for um, a better way uh, of managing uh, some balance in the market. I've often said, and I'm well on the record, and I'm sure you're aware that at the end of the day, it all does come back to rates, actually. Um, if people can't uh, get fair and just remuneration for the work that they do in a timely fashion, then it's very, very hard for them to recruit and, and retain quality drivers. It's very hard for them to maintain their gear. It's very hard to meet all the compliance obligations that they've got. And while I appreciate that rates aren't the be-all and end-all, it's certainly got to be a large component of the conversation, surely. Well, you know, profitability is not a swear word. Yeah. Um, you know, for sustainability of the industry, um, you, you need to be able to make a margin. Mm. Um, there's a high expectations on this industry about uh, what you might generally call uh, social licence. So there's high expectations of government and many others that uh, we're investing in low-carbon vehicles and, um, you know, much safer uh, trailing equipment, you know, performance-based standards you know, whether it's electric, hydrogen and a variety of other low carbon uh, approaches that are becoming more and more available over the next um, uh, five to 10 years. Well, to invest in all of that gear, you need to get a return. You do, indeed. And uh, drivers, you know, for for employees to, you know, earn, learn and prosper, uh, the industry needs to be, you know, in a sustainable space so that um, they can earn at a, um, you know, a, within a reasonable rate. Um, and that the uh, industry is is profitable, or otherwise, you end up with results like uh, we've had recently with Scotts uh, and others, and um, and they won't be the last if um, we continue to be uh, driven, you know, under cost. When I had a chat with Michael Kane a couple of weeks ago, we we did have a big discussion about Scotts, and Michael pointed out that uh, Scotts had forty uh, percent. Uh, of the market, refrigerated market, and he said that they didn't have the power to to drive 
the the uh, the returns and the rates, even with their footprint. I I just remain fairly silent about that, but I would argue that while we continue to take these rates, I mean, they're not going to just move their freight from one place to another. It can't be done. You know, we ended up with, what, 15,000 15, pallets sitting in cold stores or something, <laughs> you know? I mean, it just doesn't happen overnight. Surely the... Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons, no doubt, that mm. um, Scott's ended up in the situation they're in, but, but certainly... Um, uh, the the prices at which uh, they were running w- was a part of it. Yeah, well, um, that was reflected in the age of the fleet and and other indicators that oh, suggested yeah. Yeah. that they were um you know getting behind the um the eight ball as the old saying goes. But 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 but, but how does this happen though? I mean, they've they've obviously got salespeople that are going out and selling their services to their various clients, and you know I would say I mean I I hate to use catch phrases and things like that. But the endless race to the bottom really sort of fits in, doesn't it? They've got agents well, that are going and making commitments on behalf of the company that they end up having to comply with that aren't financially viable. Well, you've got to be tuned in. I mean, um, regardless of the business that you're in of, uh, of any size, make, type or shape uh, and whatever the industry might be, you've got to be tuned into what your costs are. Yes. And... Um, you know, this this industry for for many decades has fundamentally been price takers. Yes. Uh, and we need to move more to be a price maker because um, we can't sustain uh, the industry service levels that are necessary to to support the supply chain in this country if um, if there's not uh, an acceptance that uh, there's got to be a margin in in uh, in what we do. At the uh, tra- uh, Trucking Australia conference, I think you made mention of the fact that uh, one of your uh, one of your constituents had been told that they needed to lower their rate by three percent, or their their custom was going to return to the market. I mean, I, I don't want to know how that turned out, but it's a terrible pressure to be put under when you've got millions of dollars worth of equipment sitting there, and you know that you could lose your customer to someone who's going to uh, cut the bill by you know a few bucks. And that's the sort of pressure that uh, many are under um, every day of the week. The same as it's not unusual to have, you know, continuous improvement provision within your contracts. Yeah. Uh, where you have to return, you know, somewhere between 3 and 5% of a dividend um, to the client um, over a 12-month period. Well, that's within a, you know, a 7% on average sort of inflation environment. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, good luck with that. It's um, it's the sort of pressure that uh, where clients are continually trying to drive us, um, you know, below cost. You've got the gig industry putting a lot of pressure on at the bottom end and you've got clients trying to lower the ceiling, you know, at the top end. Mm. And uh, you've got operators right from, you know, quite sizable businesses down to, um, you know, your single truck owner driver uh, trying to operate within that space. That's where the opportunity should come with um, a minimum standards approach to at least reach some agreement around um, what the minimum should be, uh, perhaps something along the lines of cost schedules being published so that there's a clear understanding of what the minimum costs are. Oh, music to my ears. (laughs) <laughs> they're, the, they're the sorts of yeah, and they're the sorts of things. Now we we're not saying um, absolute that they are, all of those provisions will make it, but we're making a strong case to try and ensure that those sorts of provisions are in this uh, legislation to to uh, bring some better balance to the industry. Well, I had this crackpot from North Queensland ring me up the other the other day. You might know him, Bob Mc, Bob McMillan. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I called him a crackpot. He's a good mate of mine and mentor to me actually. But uh, 
Bob said to me, he said, how about some reform from the top down? And this is an idea I wanted to share with you and give you an example of a freight rate that I've seen out of Western Australia, which is absolutely diabolical. Um, Bob's idea is, as you just said, about uh, published rate schedules and things like that. How about some of these companies that who all have finance divisions, they all know exactly or can completely work out how much it costs to run a truck. How about making some of these people justify the rates they're offering and publish them? Oh, well, that's, you know, the more, the more transparent, the more sunlight, as the saying goes, mm. that you shine on these things, that the more of a disinfectant's going to be applied. Indeed. When you look at spot pricing in the US now, which yep. is only one step away from Uber, yep. uh, yesterday morning when I looked, uh, the average spot price in the US was a a dollar fifty-two a mile, which you know, and you, you can you can convert that to kilometres and you know Australian dollars and whatever, but that that is an extraordinarily low rate, even for the US, where their capital costs are lower and their fuel costs are lower. Yeah. That's that's not where we're trying to go. We we do have minimums of expectation. We do expect that uh, employees are at least paid uh, statutory provisions so that, as I say, there's every opportunity for everyone in the industry to earn, learn and prosper across at least above the floor that's set by some minimums. Mate, I'll give you an example of what's going on in Australia. We're talking about, you know, talk about spot prices in the US. The rise of the load boards and things like that, I would argue that the gig economy, uh, owner-drivers have been participating in the gig economy in this country for decades. Mm. We've been taking prices from loading agents, you know, tin, tin shed telephone type loading agents for years. Now we're taking them from load boards. I've got a load off a load board from Western Australia to Mildura. It's 24 tonne bulk bags, uh, 48 tonne loads, or a minimum load of 20, uh, 24 tonne. Yep. They're offering 3400 or they want rates that it can beat $3,450, including fuel levy and GST. You've got to meet a, a time slot, plus or minus an hour and uh, they prefer to do it in 48 tonne loads. So I just did some quick maths on that, and I don't expect you to keep up on this. Just trust me. Yep. It's 2,919 kilometres. So I said 2,900. Running a double road train, 48 tonne load, you're going to end up burning at least nine, about 1,900 litres, 950 litres of fuel at least. That's if you don't get a headwind across the paddock. Yep. That's about $3,800 worth of fuel. If you're paying a driver 55 cents a K, and that's probably pretty light, there's going to be another 1600 for the driver. So just the fuel, just the driver, $5,400, and you're going to get 6140 for the load uh, after you've paid the GST. There's no money in that for maintenance. There's certainly no money in it for a margin. If you blow a couple of tyres, you bug it. Yep, yep. Now, the thing that disgusts me about this is that there'll be someone that will do that job. And that's the worry. He wants that once a fortnight into the future. And and to me, this is the sort of thing that's got to be stopped. If you made that guy justify that rate, he couldn't possibly do it. Couldn't possibly. And I would argue that that individual is making a contribution to reducing safety on our roads. I would argue and that too. I would argue and that's that why, too. And that's why they need to be captured by a body such as this so that their uh, actions and or inactions, they can um, be held responsible for. Because at the moment... Uh, we're not really, uh, I mean, the chain of responsibility is not really being exercised right up the chain. Mm. It's only really being exercised around, um, you know, the bottom end of the chain or, or, or truck driver end or the truck or, or perhaps a depot being held responsible for a variety of behaviours when we really need to go much further up the food chain. 
Low-hanging uh, fruit, I think, that, is the term you're looking for, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to in, to hold people to account, it's um, you can't sort of um, take a view that um, oh I didn't know or it's not reasonable for me to be expected to know. If we if we have a process that uh, makes that a lot more transparent, yeah, it's it's then quite clear that you're driving someone under cost. Indeed. So this is where I was sort of suggesting, as you as you rightly said, proper rates that are recommended. I, I don't. I am not a proponent of of. Uh, Set legislated rates, I think, because as soon as you did that, that's the that's going to be the rate oh, for everyone. So I think most people, you know, have an understanding and believe in you know in the market yep. and um, you know let let the market operate. But you you need to be able to operate it within some reasonable boundaries. You know, a, a metaphor really is like you know playing a game of football. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's some reasonable boundaries, and then each team's got plenty of latitude to. Um, you know, interpret the game um, as they see fit. Well, yeah. people should be able to compete on the basis of, you know, service levels and clever logistics and, um, you know, standards of operation and all of those sorts of characteristics not not be based on um, being driven below cost when the supply chain is fully familiar and aware that they are being driven below cost. Well, all of these load boards now, mate, there's one that uh, I think it's called Truck It. They're mm-hmm. saying that they can save their customers seventy percent on freight. Right. They're being driven on price. Yep. I mean, I understand if I'm a customer, I certainly want to get my stuff moved when I want it moved at the cheapest possible price and everything like that. I also want it to get there safely. And like I've said in the presentations that I've made to the Senate and in, in other environments, we've got so many different competing forces that are involved in the freight task. And everyone's got a different set of priorities. The customers want it cheaper. The lawmakers want it done properly. The owner drivers want to make a buck out of it. Everyone's got a different set of priorities. Sometimes we all have to take a large... I think I wrote an article called We All Need to Take a Large Bite of a Very Unpleasant Sandwich. And I, yep. and I do think that's still the case. We, we need to take the shade out of the system so yep. that where there are people operating to drive people below cost mm. and, and they're making a, a clip out of that, well... When things go awry, they'll be drawn into the consequences. So you've been um, down to Canberra and you had a chat with a few people there. How many actual owner drivers were at that conference, mate? You know, oh, over over meetings. I mean, meetings have occurred over the last couple of years. Yeah, uh, there, there have been uh, owner driver representatives um, uh, participating in some of those discussions. Yeah, um, we're we're not at the stage yet where we've actually seen any legislation, but mm. there's been quite good and strong engaged discussions around uh, the nature of the industry, uh, the, the areas that need uh, improvement. Um, we've had discussions around the lessons learned from um, what you might call RSRT 1.0. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, those, there's been in, in employers, employee groups, um, um, you know, industry associations and a variety of others. Some of those meetings have been quite large. Uh, there's also there was the skills roundtable earlier in the year, and certainly owner drive, some owner drivers participated in some of those discussions. People like Glenn Stirl have you know organised a range of forums over the last couple of years. Mm. So I think there's generally a pretty solid sort of understanding of where the issues are. 
You've also had a Senate inquiry in the last couple of years that's got a, you know, contributed a fair bit of input into the whole uh, discussion. What we're waiting for now is to see um, what the first pass of the legislation might look like. Mm. Um, And no doubt there's going to be a fair bit of discussion following that. Just like all of these things, when the first cut is made, there's no doubt going to be plenty of commentary on that. There'll be a fair amount of barking in the shed, I'd say. Yeah, but I think, um, you know, the really positive thing out of all of this is that there's parties from all parts of the chain participating in these discussions and trying to work together to to bring about some improvements to the nature of the market in which we operate. So that's a plus. Every time I've spoken to Glenn about it for the last two years, um, he's basically made no secret of where they stand on it. And I I agree with a lot of it. I I really did. I, I, I fought fairly hard against the RSRT the first time. Not so much the RSRT, but the ridiculous orders. And as long as yeah. we don't end up in that situation, I think we'll be on a winner. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, I mean, they, they are talking uh, of the principle of at least um, two, maybe even three industry advisory groups attached to this new um, division, I think it'll be called, because yeah. it'll be a part of the FWC. So that that's a great opportunity for, um, you know, the commissioners as they're making decisions are getting, you know, uh, proper and thorough advice from from the areas that you know know most about that part of the industry because it is a very complex industry and it's not easy to nav- navigate and you can't expect uh, commissioners are going to get it right if they're not given some pretty decent advice during that process. The, the other part of all of this that we would hope would be a part of the process is that uh, commissioners issue interim orders rather than give sort of final decisions so that there is an opportunity then to um, test the interim order for, um, you know, how robust it is yeah, yeah. and uh, and have an opportunity uh, to be able to go back and make improvements to it. So that might that might sound very logical, but in a lot of legal processes, that's not normally available. Yeah. Uh, and we've asked for that to be considered as well, and we expect government to, um, you know, take that into account. I, I, I really, really do hope they do, and that would be my advice to anyone framing that legislation. So just before we wrap up, mate. Uh, sure. Specifically, Queensland stuff, mate. Have they finished the Bruce Highway yet? <laughs> That's going to be a while. Um, <laughs> but um, we, uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks, there'll be um, quite a substantial sort of a might call it a bus tour yep. of uh, a, a range of mares and the like uh, doing doing a trip up the um, what we now call the inland freight route, finalising um, priorities for the works t- to commence. So um, we're fairly hopeful that we'll actually see works underway before the year is out. Yeah. Bruce Highway, you know, it's a, that's a continuing um, theme and will be for uh, some considerable time yet. Sorry, mate, I couldn't help uh, it. <laughs> couldn't. And then in... Inland rail is uh, obviously the other the other big one, and connections into Brisbane that's going to need to be more fully explored because um, it's pretty unlikely they're going to be able to afford to connect uh, inland rail from Toowoomba into Brisbane. Yeah, that's the humble opinion of one, but uh, there's plenty of other commentators making the same observation that mm. um, they're now talking thirty billion plus for inland rail. Yeah, um, and that's not including. Um, what might be at least ten billion to connect Toowoomba to Brisbane. So um, I think there'll be a range of road and or rail options being explored there uh, sooner rather than later. Bit of an intermodal hub up up there somewhere, you think? Yeah, well, it's it's. I mean, the natural um, place is Toowoomba. Uh, Ebenezer would obviously um, uh, warrant 
potentially a uh, an intermodal hub as well. But uh, how we then connect to those two, um, I think, is is uh, the the $64 question. So um, there's plenty to do in uh, roadworks. There's there's a lot of issues for the industry at the moment. Not the least of which is the road user charge. We're we're waiting on oh, announcements no. as to what level that might be. We thought they sorted that out in uh, 1979, didn't we? True, true. I saw you. Um, you had a chat with um, one of the uh, your predecessors, so to speak, <laughs> from '79. Uh, Mr. Carl Goodfellow. I tell you what, mate. He, he uh, it was a very humbling experience for me to meet that man. Um, you don't often meet someone who who has walked the walk, so to speak. And yeah. He put it all on the line and uh, a very humbling experience to meet him and you'll be able to listen to that interview shortly when I've edited <laughs> it's three hours. It's a bit of an ed- epic edit. I've got to sort of get that down to somewhere manageable. But um, it's also nice. It's it's a really nice um, piece of work too to record some of that history. I mean, um, I don't think that's something we do all that well in this country is, um, yeah, you know, recount our history. Um be it, be it good or bad or, or um, you know, what opinions might be at the time. Um, there's, a, there's a variety of um, uh, occurrences in this country that are genuine history yeah, to are. this country. And uh, we don't, um, we don't re- record, particularly from the people who were there, uh, anywhere near well enough. Our opportunities are slipping away. It's got to be done soon if it's going to be done at all. Thanks very much for joining me uh, today. I do appreciate it. Uh, look forward to be seeing you at Brisbane, I suppose, at the truck show. You'll be up there for that one. Yes, yes, we got uh, we got plenty on. Uh, we'll be um, out and across um, uh, the truck show. There's there's a whole variety of matters underway here in Queensland and and or around the country. We've had some um, uh, pretty good progress on on a variety of things just recently cunningham's gap uh, may well be a talking point for for your uh, listeners that project commences in the next couple of weeks and we'll be releasing a couple of videos around that in the next few weeks that that piece of work will go on for the next couple of years and uh, we've been quite pleased with how well the uh, project operators and uh, transport main roads have worked with us on um, trying to minimize the impact of uh, traffic management during that period Oh, um, be interesting to see. And yeah, and it'll also be quite an improvement to that uh, to that climb once it's finished. But the, the, there's a variety of others. The inland freight route, as I say, we're pretty excited to see works getting underway. There's a lot on. No worries. Well, thanks for that. You have a great day. I know that you've got a busy one you in too. front of you, and uh, look forward to talking to you down the track. For sure. Good on Safe you, travels. Good on you, mate. Okay. Bye. See ya. There's nothing more devastating for a truck operator than to be involved in a serious road incident. We've all seen the impact of heavy vehicle accidents and at these times, when people are most vulnerable, it's critical that they have immediate support from a strong, stable, reliable and experienced organisation. NTI is Australia's number one truck insurer, the specialist you can count on to protect your transport and logistics assets, with the know-how to take control of the situation and the capability to reduce lost income by getting trucks back on the road again as soon as possible. Specialist products, experienced people, accredited repair and recovery networks and industry advocacy is what we do. It's our specialty and we've been doing it for more than 45 years. For more information, visit the website at nti.com.au or go to the NTI Facebook page. We know you're loving the live programming because the feedback that we're getting tells us that you are. We love the Saturday night session. So we're going to now bring you 
a show on Wednesday night. I jokingly called it the Wednesday Waffle. We'll see if that sticks. But Wednesday, 7.30 till about 9.30. During the week for all you guys out there, you can call in 0491 That's 0491 The Wednesday Waffle. I like it. Let's see if you do. Here on the road, it's time for the news. G'day, Mike. How you doing, mate? Well, the brain's fried, mate. I'm on these uh, medications at the moment, and, and seriously, uh, it can be a little bit confusing. Mm. I, uh, I said before, what's wrong with me? And you said you could give me some suggestions. <laughs> Probably not necessary, mate. <laughs> Don't be the longest news we've done yet. That's... <laughs> I, I think I'm a little bit challenged at the moment. But anyway, let's go, mate. What, what have you got for the... What, see, I can't even speak English. What have you got for us today? Let, let me take over here for a bit while you catch up. <laughs> Mate, I'm, uh, I'm actually a bit peckish. I, I was thinking before, it's quite hungry work doing the news. I reckon we should get pizza delivered to the news desk. What do you reckon? I reckon we should. We ordered a pizza delivery last night, and when I got the knock on the door, the guy screamed at me from the darkness down at the bottom of the steps, stay right there, keep your hands where I can see them and don't move. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out it was his first night on the job, and he was taking the whole contactless delivery thing pretty seriously. <laughs> Anyway, mate, just quickly before we kick in, mm. we don't usually do sort of call-outs, but we've got a couple that I think we should do this week. Yep. And I'll just kick it off and then pass it over to you. But one of our loyal listeners, right from day one, mm. Glenn in Townsville, he's doing it tough health-wise at the moment. Just wanted to say, g'day, Glenn, we're thinking of you, mate. The whole team here at On The Road is certainly thinking of you. You're in our thoughts. Look after yourself. So our, our one listener from Queensland's feeling a bit crook. No, that's two. My wife listens. Does she? <laughs> Sometimes. Well, I, I, I hope uh, you have a good outcome anyway, mate, and uh, just do what you can. Take the advice of the doctors and plenty of ice cream uh, and even some bourbon or something works for me. Yeah, yeah, it works for me too. And you got one you'd like to mention, mate. Yeah, mate. There's a bloke getting married on uh, on Sunday, God save him. Uh, mm. We've tried to talk him out of it, but he's convinced that it's a good idea. We all do it. He's being let out of hospital in Toowoomba hmm. and uh, going to go up to the BP at Charlton. They're a bit of a convoy for him. Now, he's a, he's, he's not a well man, and yep. uh, to be let out of hospital to go and get married sort of tells you all you need to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Cronin, his name is Chucky. He used to work at Eastwells, a long-time uh, driver. He wants to go for uh, a last ride in a truck, so the boys are organising a convoy for him. If you want any details, you can ring Ken up on uh, 0411 588 695. That's 0411 588 695 and get any of the details. But the short story is turn up with your truck, your prime mover at the BP at Charlton at 11 o'clock Sunday morning. Just a short drive down to Picnic Point where they're getting married and uh, help this bloke see it out and do it right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chucky, you're certainly in our thoughts too, mate. Yeah. If any of our listeners head out to that, if you want to give us a report after the event, tell us how it all went. That'd yeah, be good. That'd be good. Yeah. All right. So I suppose we better get on to the news, mate. Do something serious. I don't. I don't really feel like it, but let's let's just have a crack, mate. See what's silly in Australia trucking today. Well, it'll probably start serious, but it never ends up that way, does it? No, it never does. 
Speaking of taking things seriously, the NHVR has launched its next part of the Don't F*** With A Truck road safety campaign targeting, and the, the truck horn will come in there, so all good. <laughs> Don't F*** With A Truck road safety campaign targeting learners and peepladers with the slogan, Don't Truck It Up. Don't truck it up, mate. Do not mm. truck it up. A little bit serious, uh, the program. I find it wildly amusing that the uh, the regulator is uh, mucking about with double entendres and all that sort of thing. Uh, I suppose. Wow, well, that's a big word. It is a big word, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it'd be French or something, is it? Probably. Didn't know you spoke another language, mate. <laughs> you haven't heard me on Saturday night at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's gibberish. That's different. Oh, that's gibberish. That's different language. <laughs> NHVR spokesperson Michelle Taylor said the combination of humour and shock factor in the campaign is designed to grab the attention of young drivers. It grabbed my attention anyway, that's all I can say. Uh, Last year, Australia recorded 196 fatalities involving heavy vehicles. And according to NTI's Natasi report, typically around 70% of these incidents involve both heavy vehicles with light vehicles, and they turned out to be the fault of the light vehicles. So the the campaign's aimed at those younger drivers. Don't truck it up. There's some uh, some spots online, Instagram. They're doing Snapchat, YouTube, etc. And mm. we're going to be doing a little bit with them on the on the road radio stream as well, mate. So keep your eye out and don't truck it up. Yeah, something to look forward to. Absolutely, don't truck it up. Made a couple of stories coming up on uh, regarding bridges. In Melbourne, truck operators have called for the Balti Bridge to be opened up to higher productivity trucks to avoid dangerous detours during ongoing work on the Westgate Tunnel Project. Yeah, there, there's a lot of work going on there. Now, the Balti Bridge has obviously been around for a while. It's that it comes off the end of the the Tullamarine Freeway and joins up with the uh, the motorway to go uh, down under the Domain and and uh, throughout the Monash, etc., and over mm. the Westgate. So with the tunnel building that's going on there, uh, a lot of these uh, high-productivity vehicles are going to be diverted through the busy Docklands precinct and into the Harbour Esplanade. And, you know, I mean, it's just got disaster written all over it. How short are the memories? It wasn't that long ago that Power Street saw that accident where someone was... was uh, lost their life because hmm. the B-double clipped a, a light post. I yep. mean, they're setting themselves up for disaster. Now, yeah. the Baldy Bridge is not a flimsy little sway bridge or something like that. It really should be able to stand what's going on. And uh, container transport operators have you know, really significant concerns about the long-term road closures that are earmarked to happen uh, uh, with the project. We all understand that road work take time and, and things have to happen and it's obviously much better to close some things down and do the road works in a timely fashion without having to close down and restart and you know all the rest of it. Perhaps we need some people to have a look at how some of these high productivity vehicles actually operate and where they can go uh, and go safely. We don't want to have any silly mistakes made. Sometimes yeah. sometimes the people that are making these decisions aren't the best ones to make them, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got to keep that freight moving, mate. Just out of interest, sake, what's a higher productivity truck? I thought all trucks were high productivity. Well, they sort of tend to be. The high productivity yeah. vehicles are the ones with the... the uh, they're slightly longer than normal. They're slightly... Uh, allowed to carry slightly more weight. So 
the idea of a high productivity vehicle down around the docklands in Melbourne would be one of the ones that you see with the two 40-foot trailers with the four axles underneath them, the quad axles carting two 40-foot boxes. So they're a lot longer than a, than a normal B-double and they're probably a little bit more heavy and they take a little bit more room to turn, etc. It's one of the right. reasons why you don't want them on these detours, mate. They, yeah. dro- they drive well on straight roads, but when you start manoeuvring them around objects, and all, it doesn't take very much to make a mistake. And you've only got to hit a post or something by even an inch, and that's enough to, to cause some serious uh, damage to infrastructure and to the trucks. Yeah. Oh, well, it would appear that my mother-in-law must be high productivity because she seems to be allowed to carry a bit more weight. <laughs> anyway, moving on. I think we should. Still on the subject of bridges, this time in Queensland, there are some new rules that have come into force for trucks travelling over the Burdekin River Bridge. The Burdekin River Bridge. Mm. They're trying to minimise property damage and traffic delays. and uh, Always a good thing. Well, it's always. <laughs> At least they're thinking about it up there. Yes. Uh, the TMR have taken over control of the traffic signals on either side of the Burdekin River Bridge. And sort of as of this month, all the heavy vehicle operators who want to go over the uh, Burdekin Bridge with oversized overmass loads have to contact TMR Operations, uh, the TMR Management Centre on 131940. That's 131940 before attempting to move across the bridge. So it's very mm-hmm. narrow. And the issue with the Burdekin Bridge is it's, even though it's a square uh, frame uh, steel bridge with a, like girders over the top of it, it's got this lovely sort of A-frame section reinforcing it. And mm. they, uh, the height on the sides is uh, a little bit tight. And, you know, there's a condition on the Burdekin River Bridge there now where vehicles three metres wide, 4.6 metres high northbound and 4.5 metres high southbound have, have uh, to get permission to go across before they go across. It's always been the case. I wonder why you've got to be the difference between 4.6 metres high northbound or 4.6 metres, sorry, 4.5 metres high southbound. I was uh, just wondering the same thing. It, that's a bit weird. I've never realised that. I thought it was 4.5 metres both ways. But anyway, that, I, maybe I don't Maybe it's something know. to do with wind direction, mate. Maybe it does. Maybe if you're not holding your mouth right, you, you sort of have a problem. I don't know. Or if you've had a big feed once you've been north and you're coming back and you're sitting a bit lower, I don't know. Well, there's a roadhouse on the other side and a lovely parking area there. So you can oh, it could be that. duck in and you can sort of get your uh, half a dozen dim sims with your soy sauce and come out and maybe you need that extra bit of, no, I don't know. Half a dozen? You on a diet, mate? Probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. TMR spokesman says the signs will be installed to pull over areas on both sides, northbound and southbound. Make the phone call. Don't get yourself in trouble. Absolutely. Let's keep the bridge where it is. Indeed. What's the best place for it, really? I think so. In WA, Mike, the state government has decided to make greater use of point-to-point safety cameras following what has been deemed to be a successful trial run. Yeah, well, if it raises money for the government out of the pockets of the taxpayers, it's always a successful trial run, isn't it? Highly successful, they're, yes. They're going to give Queensland lessons. That's what I reckon, mate. You'll be seeing these in Queensland shortly. Anastasia will be looking at this and she'll be going, oh, look at that. Mm. Goody. Uh, <laughs> they're going to spend $11.2 million putting these things uh, in the name of road safety. I I wonder about point-to-point cameras. They've got them in Victoria, you know. 
There's a lot of things in Victoria that shouldn't be there, but anyway. No, I'm not in Victoria and I shouldn't be there, so that's, that's good. <laughs> um, Police Minister... <laughs> <laughs> Serious now. Western hmm. Australia Police Minister Paul Papalia uh, says the cameras will be set up in pairs. That's usually the way they go when they're point to point, Paul. Across well, they can get lonely. They do get lonely. Across yeah. a range of uh, locations to calculate the average speed of a driver between two points. And obviously, if you uh, are shorter than the allowed time, then you'll be deemed to have exceeded the speed and you'll be getting a blister in the mail. Yeah. They're able to catch drivers speeding, but they can also monitor seat belts and mobile phone use. Mobile phones, uh, yeah. Oh, look at that. It's just getting too easy to get caught now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, Papalia said that they're uh, going to be doing this. The six months, when the six months cameras were trialled, eight million drivers were monitored. Forty-two thousand of those were detected committing an average speeding offence. And while no infringement notices were issued during the trial because they couldn't do it, the law didn't say they could. Government yeah. calculated that there'd been about one hundred and twenty thousand demerit points would have been lost. Good grief. It's about how many of the average professional truck driver loses every time he encounters an upset highway patrol officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, 100% of the money generated from the automated traffic enforcement fines would be placed into the Road Trauma Trust account to be spent on initiatives and resources to increase road safety. I'd love to see how long that lasts for. There'll be some little loophole somewhere. I'd bet money on it that some of that money will eventually end up in consolidated revenue. Do you think? Oh, look, am I just too cynical? Yeah, it might be. They reckon uh, the worst recidivist driver during the trial was caught so many times that he would have been issued 80 demerit points. Oh, come on, name names. Who oh, was it? <laughs> probably Yogi driving backwards and forwards in that bloody Kenworth of his. Wasn't he in the US? I can't blame it on Yogi. <laughs> you can't, oh, no, we can't. Yeah. Around 2,000 drivers would have lost their licence, apparently. Good grief. Oh, man. A lot of people are going to get a lot of surprises, I'd say. And uh, the uh, road safety mantra, you know, if it saves only one. Here's the Mm. thing about speed cameras. Here's the thing about these point-to-point speed cameras, right? Yep. It won't take very long for the people to learn where they are. Mm -hmm. They will drive between the speed cameras at the recommended speed. If they can get off between the speed cameras and go to where they want to go, they won't give it toss about it they'll just yeah. do whatever they're going to do anyway because they're not going to get the second measurement they'll just go yeah. for it yeah yeah they're just going to go for it and i mean i look i don't advocate people breaking the law not by a long shot but what i do say is that things like this are just cynical money grabs how we enforce the road law is having marked highway patrol cars driving up and down seeing yeah. the red and blues flashing seeing that patrol car sitting there Seeing that motorcycle riding up and down, that's what makes people drive sensibly, not mm. bloody pylons with technology sitting on the side of the road and getting a blister two weeks later. That just pisses yeah. people off. Absolutely. Well, I don't think you're a cynic, mate. I, I think it's very hard to see it any other way other than a revenue-raising exercise. Looks a bit that way to me. And for them to mm. say that they're going to spend it all on initiatives that reduce road trauma, what are they going to mm. do? Fix a few potholes? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> You know, I don't know. What are they going to do? Are they going to fix the ramping problems for the ambulances in Western Australia? I mean, what they going to do some practical things with them. I should get off my horse, mate. Let's move on. Maybe they're going to spend it on more parking areas, mate. Maybe they are. I doubt it. Yeah.
Mate, with yet another of Australia's largest trucking companies going into receivership this week, the crisis facing the road transport industry appears to be deepening. And if you'd told Australian Trucking Association CEO David Smith five years ago that he'd be parking his trucks, he'd have said, you're mad. He, yep. he admits he would have laughed. Mm. But he's done now that he's been parking trucks. I wonder why that is. I mean, uh, driver recruitment and retention is an issue for everyone. Training is an issue for everyone. Safety is an issue for everyone. And we sort of seem as though we're going nowhere fast. We just... Everyone's sort of trying to be calm and quiet on the outside, but everyone's, you know, paddling like buggery underneath. We're all like ducks on a pond, mate. It's ridiculous. Mm. Uh, workers are in absolute crisis, uh, apparently, uh, coupled with the heavier burdens of shrinking staff pools. Smith's saying that he's parking his trucks. He's also saying that you can't get mechanics, you can't get admin staff. It's right across the whole industry. Trucking right now is in an absolute crisis, and that's according to Michael Kane. When I spoke to Michael, we were talking about uh, things that are happening in trucking. It's just ridiculous. Scott's yeah. obviously was a, you know, AHG Scott's uh, was a uh, distressing reminder that the drivers and operators are being attacked on all sides, according to Kane. Uh, the wealthier companies are just squeezing as much as they can out of the contracts, and none of that's filtering down. Mm. Everyone's had enough. And we, you know, we talk about people with seats at the table, and there are people with seats at the table. I'm thinking that they're not sitting at the right table. Yeah. You know, because it's been going on for years. The more we talk about it, nothing seems to happen. The names have changed, but the game remains the same. And that is cut the rate to the point the customer's happy, skim your bit off the top. It doesn't really matter how many hands this load passes through. Every hand that goes through skims a little bit off the top till it finally gets to the bloke that carts it. He's the bloke that takes all the risk. He's the bloke that does all the work. And he's the bloke that gets screwed the hardest on yep. every level. Even when it comes down to chain of responsibility and everything. The guy driving the truck, they're the first target. They're the first bloke that the buddy enforcement officers hit. They're the people that the public see and blame for everything. They're mm. the people that end up being scraped off the road and out of the scenery when it goes wrong. And we just have this endless cycle of rubbish going on all the time. And I'm on a horse again, mate. Mm. There's just so much in it that's, that's thoroughly wrong. Uh, without the backing of any legislation, nothing changes now. We had a chat with Glenn Stirl on the show. Thanks for coming on, Glenn, on uh, Wednesday night. We talked about a lot of this stuff. We talked about the legislation that they're working their way through uh, in, the, uh, in the parliament at the moment. He is sick of it. Tried. Uh, he's sick of it being called, you know, RSRT Mark II. And I can't say I blame him because it's not going to be RSRT Mark II. It's going to be something else. Mm. And there, there are going to be legislated minimum uh, standards. I, I, I have questions about that. We can discuss all that later. There's not going to be minimum legislated rates though because the government just can't do it. Glenn said they can't do it. Yep. There's nothing manufactured in this country that doesn't go on the truck. Nothing. Mm. If you mm. look around in any everywhere you are, if you're sitting in your office now listening to this, if you're sitting at home now listening to this, if you're sitting in your car listening to this, everything in that car was in a truck at least once. If, in fact, if you're driving a car, the car itself has been on a car carrier at least three times. At mm. least three times. Once from the factory when it was built to where it was shipped. Once from the wharf when it arrived in Australia 
to pre-car uh, or whichever pre-delivery or inspection point and then from there to the dealership. Three times at least your car has been on a car carrier. Mm. You know, everything comes by truck. People need to think about that. And unfortunately, the truckies, the trucking businesses are expected to make up for the shortfalls of all the other businesses and make sure that their profits are intact. It's got to be the other way around. It's about time for the truckies' profits to be intact as well. Time for the buck to stop somewhere else. It is. Mate, should I just get off this horse now? Should I just... How can I do a graceful dismount at this point? Oh, don't worry about being graceful. Just <laughs> leap off, mate. Right. Well, I'll, I'll get off. What else have we got, mate? You talk about the seats at the table. I think that's the issue because they're all round tables, Camelot. And, um, you know, we need to get back to the good old-fashioned rectangular ones. They seem to work better. Well... And maybe some robust conversations out the back of the bike shed wouldn't go astray. Good old robust conversations, yes. yes. I love those. Mate, we've got a little bit of breaking news. Our good friends at Janus Electric have done it again, this time with the world first all-electric triple road train soon to hit the road in South Australia. Yep. I, I sort of knew this was coming, this one, and I've, I've had to make, I've had to remain silent. And that's the worst part about doing a weekly show because sometimes you know things. Mm. Um, and you really wish you could steal the march on the other media, and and you can't. But anyway, Lex Lex was pretty proud of this one, and I can't say I blame him. This truck that they've done in conjunction with Cube and um, Oz Minerals is going to be running backwards and forwards to the Carapatina mine to the port at Wyala. So it's a 165k trip one way. Uh, initially, the truck, which is a, a Volvo uh, FH16 uh, 8x6 prime mover. So what that means is it's got uh, three drive axles. It's like that 909 I used to drive, only it's a Volvo. Uh, mm. Three drive axles. It's the heaviest rated electric truck in the world. The heaviest rated electric truck in the world. Let that sink in. Yeah. It is a groundbreaking, cutting-edge fantastically awesome piece of technology and I don't mind saying it and Lex and the boys at Janus Electric have done an amazing thing it's got 720 horsepower of Dana Magic driving this thing along a 12 speed auto gearbox and it'll do those round trips quite easily, towing three trailers and rated at 170 tonnes you kind of like it don't you? no, hate the thing (laughs) what do you think? I reckon you should show your enthusiasm a bit more, mate. You reckon? Than, no, I love yeah. it. I mean, what can you say? This no, thing, it's pretty amazing. It's it's absolutely, totally amazing. Remember back in the day when you and I talked about electric cars that couldn't make it round the track because they were running out of power? Oh, yeah, right? Formula E. Formula E. And we were laughing yeah. our ass off. And then we were taking the piss out of Janice and all the other electric truck manu- manufacturers saying that this will never work, right? Oh, I don't think I don't think we ever did that, did we? I, I think we might have initially. I, I, oh, I think I, I might have. I don't recall that. Don't you? I thought we were a bit more professional than that, but anyway. Did you? Your memory's better than mine. Did we take the piss out of them professionally? <laughs> did we do that? <laughs> Righto. Since then, Janice have had the successful trial of the Western Star working up in Brisbane, uh, doing tippers and tankers and everything with Wholesome. They've done mm. that. Mm-hmm. They've run a Coronado up and down between uh, Sydney and Berkeley Vale uh, towing a van. They've got a tanker in now with uh, Australian Cement. And now we've got this thing lining up. We've got the log truck 
at Fennell logging down in Mount Gambier in South Australia, mm. these things are out here on the road in real-world conditions and they're being successful. You've got to take your hat off to Lex. When I interviewed him for the story I did in New Zealand Trucking Magazine, he said that down the track, if, if they haven't captured a fairly large slice of the market, well, he thinks that they'll have failed. I think that they'll have failed too because, I mean, they're claiming that these trucks are going to offer between a 10 and 30% saving in operating cost. Mm. And when you think about it, if you're not doing V services, if you're not doing roadside maintenance on things that are breaking, your OEM parts that are breaking, if all you're doing is turning them in, changing the batteries and turning them around and sending them out again, uh, apart from your regular you know, brake inspections and tyre rotations and things like that, you're going to save money. It goes without saying. Yeah. It really does. And they run 40% cooler than a diesel engine. Mm. So if you're looking in a, an environment like this thing's going to be operating in, that's got to be a plus. Indeed. I just sort of think the lack of vibration through the drive line because we, you know, we're not turning those pistons and just the whole, there's so much you can talk about about it. And mm. I'd like to say that Lex was sponsoring me to say all this, but he's not. It's what I genuinely believe. The thing's amazing. And uh, I would challenge anyone to find any electric truck anywhere in the world that's even close. Yeah. In the words of Monty Python, mate, isn't technology wonderful? It is. Yeah. It is. It's even got the machine that goes beep in it. <laughs> as long as it doesn't go, nee. <laughs> oh, the oh mate, we better wind this up. This, this has been a, a long news. It's epic. We've had a lot it's to a, talk about, though. It's kind of like long COVID, but a lot more interesting, really, isn't it? Before you go, thought for the week. Righto. Personal growth centres on two types of people, the ones we like and the ones who drive us nuts. Right. <laughs> it's a good job we like each other, isn't it? Uru, guru. <laughs> See you, mate. This is Pepper from Hurricane Fall, and you're listening to On The Road Radio and Podcast. Line number one, you're supposed to have it all together. When they ask how you're doing, just smile and tell them, never better. We just wanted to stop by for a moment and say, G'day, how are you? No, I mean, how are you, really? Physical and mental health is a significant issue for the Australian road transport and logistics industries. Risk factors like long hours, workplace isolation, pressure to meet deadline deliveries and the need for continual alertness all contribute to making us vulnerable to physical and mental health issues. As much as it might feel that way sometimes, you are not alone. There are some incredible people and organisations in our industry whose sole focus is on helping you to stay healthy in body, mind and spirit. All these numbers and addresses are listed on our website at ontheroadpodcast.com.au. Take care of yourselves. We really just want to see everyone get home safe and well. The truth be told. Bob McMillan, something to talk about, mate. You've been uh, on and talking about the uh, top-down reform idea that you've got. 
I've spoken to Gary Mann about it. We've heard what he's had to say earlier in the show. He seems as though he thinks it's a great idea. Uh, we had Senator Glenn Stirl on the on the show live Wednesday night on our new Wednesday Waffle Show and told him about your idea. The crackpot from North Queensland, Bob McMillan. How are you, mate? I'm well, thanks, Mike. Uh, so I'm interested to know what other people think about it because uh, it's sort of, uh, yeah, just sort of, like I said in um, one of my podcasts, uh, it was just a thought bubble at the time, but it uh, it sort of might have uh, struck a chord or two. It's grown legs. It's certainly grown legs, Bob. What's the, uh, where did it come from, this thought bubble? Well, I was sitting there, you know, doing one of the podcasts and it just sort of, rolled into my mind as I was talking but uh, what what was on my mind and and you know we've we've talked many times about how the more things change the more they seem to stay the same that's right yeah. and the only things that change are the the dates the times and the places and the and the names of the people yeah and uh I just thought maybe we've been looking at this you know th- there's an old uh, well, a bit of an adage in marketing and that where if something market if you if your strategy's not working you uh and I learnt this when I did that diploma thing. Yeah. Um, you, you unpack it, you unpack it, and turn it upside down, inside out, and round and round, and you might come up with a better answer. Yeah, well, that'd be a good place to start, wouldn't it? Just let's not keep doing the same thing over and again. Yeah. So on reflection, that's what I actually did in my mind without realising it. I unpacked it and turned it upside down, and thought, oh, "One hour, this would go." Well, the idea that people who set the rates should have to justify them. Isn't isn't that weird, is it? I mean, it, it takes yeah, away yeah. takes away any sort of thought that it's a good idea to legislate the minimum rates that some of us are so fond of that idea, because yeah, yeah. if they legislate a minimum rate, well, that uh, and and by the way, Senator Stirl said that that can't be done. They can't do that. Um, yeah. if, if but if they were to do that, then we we both know that history tells us that whatever. Uh, becomes the minimum standard. That will be the standard. <laughs> when those rates come out in 1980, mm. um, the ARTFTW rates and the minimum became the maximum. And I'd always predicted that, and yeah. that was my objective to them. But the whole thing is, um, what you've got to understand is, we talk about setting the rates, but the people who offer rates, whether they're good, bad, or otherwise, the people who are offering the rates, and it's usually the people offering the lowest rates that get the most attention because you can't actually make a living on them, mm. um, those people are actually setting the rate. They're setting the market. And the other half of setting the market is when people accept them. Yeah, well, what comes first? As you say, what comes first? The uh, the desperation or the stupidity? Yeah, so I just figured if, if uh, you know, after having said about... The, because my first thought bubble was, oh, maybe we should just try fixing it from the top down without going into too much detail in my mind. And then I got thinking about it um, at beer o'clock a couple of days later and thought, oh, yeah, well, how would you do it? And as far as I'm concerned, if they, uh, you know, and no one's asking people to, uh, or no one's suggesting that companies should give away their, their rate structure to their customers or anything else, but if they're staying in business and being profitable, as they should be, uh, quite opposite to uh, Scots and all the other people who don't know how to manage anything, um, they uh, they would know what their line haul costs are. And, um, you know, it, there's a lot more to owning a transport company than line haul costs. You've got administration costs, you've got staff, you've got forklifts, you've got depots, you've got every bit of add-on you can think of. To be able to uh, declare their, their line haul cost 
justify the rates they're offering on the basis of that should not be a problem. And as I said, they've got the they've got the people, they've got the wherewithal, they've got the financial nous to know. They know bloody well if they're offering a profitable rate or not, or or a, a, you know a, a viable rate or not. If they were you know in a position where they've got to justify the rates they're offering, I think it'd take away a lot of problems. And I don't think it's asking too much of anyone to be that ethical or be that honest. The only issue I I can see with it, the only complication I can see with it, and I think I might have a solution to that too or a suggestion anyway, the latest development of the old uh, tin shed and telephone loading for, oh. freight forks that, that, that I referred to before. Uh, we've now got a digital version of them and there seems to be a, about 11 of them in Australia so far, yeah. all modelled on all modelled on American freight brokers and um, they're there to save the shipper or the consignor or the manufacturer, whatever you want to call them, money, and it doesn't matter who they send broke in the process. We, we need to rope them into the top-down idea plus into uh, the chain of responsibility. And that's the other thing I think should be uh, being looked at from the top down rather than the bottom up as the chain of responsibility, Mike. So there's, you know, the thought bubbles led to a lot of other thoughts here. I'm sure it has. And you know what, mate, you really should go and have a listen to the Wednesday waffle section on the podcast feed. Because yes. Glenn Stirl and uh, Yogi Craig and I addressed all that in great detail, mate. In fact, oh, that's good. I got on the soapbox and had a good old-fashioned rant about it. It was uh, oh, you know, wow. hellfire yeah. and brimstone from the pulpit. It was, mate. I hope it just doesn't stay at that. You know, yeah. Um, the, every, every protest or every thing I've been involved in to try and make things better, there's always been had to be compromised. Like mm. even on Razorback, the boys didn't get every uh, every item of their claim list up, but they, they, they got the important things up. Yeah. And uh, that's what we need to do here. We don't necessarily need to leave it as a debate or start having meetings, bloody meetings, or electing 17 committees. Mm. We need to get the people, the people at the coalface, the people who can make a difference, like Glenn Stirl and obviously get the uh, ALC and the ATA and all the big shows on board, um, you know, having um, Glenn do the groundwork to say to these people, well, you've got two ways of dealing with this. You can either go with it or fight it, and either way, you'll, you, you know, you'll, you'll be involved one way or another with it yep. for luck. Yep. Um, so, you know, there's, there's going to have to be some goodwill and cooperation and, and, and some mature and grown-up debate amongst people who can and will and should make a difference. Well, let's see how we go, mate. Thanks for coming on and doing uh, something to talk about with us, mate. I do appreciate your input in the show and the feedback that I get from the listeners suggests that they like having your opinions about. So old dinosaurs uh, like you, mate, (laughs) (laughs) still have something to offer. I got. I've got a, I got. I used to have plenty of time on my hands to think about things and mull over them on the road, Mike. Yeah. And I've, I've got still got a little bit of that, even though I'm home taking phone calls and reading books and doing all sorts of stuff. But uh, I've, I've always felt privileged to be involved and to be able to uh, have my say and hopefully make a difference one way or another, mate. So thanks for the opportunity and keep up the good work. All right, mate. No worries at all. Take care of yourself. I'll talk to you down the track. All right. Let me know when I get boring and I'll give it away and go to the pub. <laughs> Oh, no. You can get a home delivery, mate. You'll be right. <laughs> See you later. See ya. Kermie here from Trucking with Kermie. 
I listen to On The Road podcasts every week. And when that's done, you might like to pop over to Trucking With Kermie on Facebook for my take on trucking and the people who make the industry what it is. Catch you over there, and in the meantime, take care of you. Here's our featured band back to take us out of the show for this week. In a live recorded remake of the old Credence classic, here's Two-Tone Pony rocking out with Green River. Just warning our uh, sound guy, it can get a bit loud.
Road is proudly brought to you by NTI, Australia's leading transport and logistics insurer, and Queensland Rail, committed to improving safety through engineering, innovation and education. Play nice with each other and most of all, stay safe out there. Bye for now. Bye-bye. The team here at On The Road believe in the right to free speech and whilst we might not always be in agreement with the views of our guests and contributors, we support their right to hold and express those opinions. Thank you.